Hey everyone, this is Risky Business and my name's Patrick Gray. This week's show is brought to you by RunZero, uh, which obviously they make an amazing asset discovery tool. Uh, the company was co-founded by HD Moore, the creator of Metasploit. And HD is joining me in this week's sponsor interview for a really interesting chat about asset scanning uh, and how it ties into vulnerability management these days. And, uh, you know, this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Patching targets at the average enterprise are really low, like five to 10% of CVEs in large organizations. So the vulnerability management game is much more about patching the right thing at the right time these days and asset discovery tools like RunZero are becoming absolutely critical in doing that. So I spoke to HD more about that and also about how do your own discovery uh, is a bit of a lost art. And we also spoke about how you can scan ICS gear with UDP packets and not do damage. Uh, we also have a feature guest in this week's show, Heather Adkins. She is the VP of Security Engineering at Google and also serves as the Vice Chair of the Cyber Safety Review Board or the CSRB. And she's joining us this week to talk through the board's lapsus report. That is coming up later, but first up, we're going to jump into the week's news segment with Adam Boileau. And Adam, it looks like we're still discovering uh, the true scope of this recent attack against Microsoft email accounts using that stolen or somehow acquired mystery key. Uh, now we've got a, a, a congressman from the United States, uh, Don Bacon, another one of those terrific uh, American names. Don Bacon apparently had his, uh, had his email popped. Yes, uh, and he's a, a guy that's been pretty important, I think, in some of the conversations around the US support of Taiwan. And in that respect, this may have backfired a little bit because he uh, seems to be not super happy about uh, Chinese hackers busting into his emails uh, and is now you know, waving the stick about uh, how much they are going to support Taiwan. So maybe an own goal there uh, for the Chinese intelligence services. I mean, I, I think the thing that I find interesting about this is not so much that this particular person was targeted. It's more that, you know, it's been a little while now and we're still unpicking the scope of it. Yes. Well, I mean, I guess they had access to some of the extended logging uh, that Microsoft provided for, for a fee in the cloud. But still, digging through cloud logs, understanding what they mean, understanding the breadth of something like this is really hard. And, you know, we don't know to what extent Microsoft's been involved in you know, helping with this investigation, I would imagine quite a fair bit. Uh, mm. But yeah, it does take times to understand, you know, the impact of intrusions into systems that you don't really see the inside of normally. I mean, we need to keep perspective here, though, like uh, hacking into a politician's email account, especially a politician who is doing China Taiwan stuff in an espionage context that is definitely in scope. Yeah, like it can be legitimate targeting and also, you know, kind of concerning in the sense that we don't understand how the cloud works enough to figure these things out ourselves as an outsider. Um, but yeah, legitimate nonetheless. Yeah, yeah. So I think the the, the takeaway here is that uh, China was doing quite a lot of espionage here and um, <laughs> perhaps should not have been able to. And, you know, since we last spoke, I think we spoke last week about Ron Wyden uh, writing an angry letter. It was either last week or the week before, uh, you know, suggesting that uh, various bits of the government you know, getting get involved in investigating Microsoft and urge the CSRB to pick this up as an item for its next investigation. And the Cyber Safety Review Board has indeed done that. Now, we've got Heather Adkins joining us later in the show. We're not going to talk to her about uh, this investigation. She is recusing herself because obviously, you know, her day job is VP of uh, Security Engineering at Google, which means she works for a competitor of Microsoft. So obviously, obviously, she's bowing out of that one. But I, for one, cannot wait to read this report in six months or whatever, uh, a CSRB report into what actually went wrong here. Yes, that's exactly what you know. Something like the CSRB is for you know investigating these kind of really big, complicated issues that affect a whole bunch of people beyond you know the, the victims of a particular attack, and breaking it down for us in a way that you know makes it clear what overall we should be doing. Uh, when mm. we consume cloud services like this. So yeah, I'm very much here for this as well. I do well, wonder, not just what we should be doing, but what Microsoft should well, really and, be doing as well. Right? Yeah, we, exactly. Like all of us, because we are so reliant on the cloud vendors and Microsoft in particular to run their stuff right. And when their stuff is a work in progress, like they're building it as they... Um, as they fly yeah, building, the, building the plane as they fly it sort of thing yeah. exactly like so we do kind of need some help from the outside as customers to be able to understand how to do it uh, i do wonder you know there's lots of people on the csrb who also work in the computer industry and everybody 
is a Microsoft customer. So it's, I imagine it's going to be a difficult conversation around the table there as to who's going to conduct parts of this investigation and so on, because Heather can't be the only one that you know is considering what conflict. the conflicts yeah, might yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, one thing I find interesting about all of this, and it's something that's sort of come up in the, you know, in the discussion on the periphery is like CSRB does not have subpoena powers, like they can't make people talk to them. If you look through the lapsus report, which is one that we're going to be talking about uh, later with Heather, uh, you know, they had good cooperation from a bunch of the people who got owned by those crazy lapsus kids, but some of them just chose not to. So I think it's going to be really interesting when members of the CSRB present Microsoft with a bunch of really uncomfortable questions to see what they're going to do because they can't just not answer them because that would look terrible in the report uh, and is the sort of thing that will result in the CSRB actually getting subpoena yes. powers, which I can't imagine Microsoft is too keen on either. So I, I, I can just imagine we're going to wind up with a bunch of really weaselly responses to some of these questions. <laughs> Which Microsoft right? but is good at. Yeah, but it's going to be this sort of delicate dance on both sides, I, I can imagine, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, in any other country other than the United States, trying to conduct this kind of investigation would probably be impossible, right? The US is big enough as a Microsoft customer and also as their host government to be able to apply the pressure or, as you say, just make it so they have to by giving the, the board uh, the relevant powers. But, you know... Well, I mean, if, those powers won't be coming anytime soon. Um, no. You know, but, certainly not in time for this inquiry. But, yeah, I, I just... I really wonder how this part of it's going to play out. Yes. And, you know, for, for you and I in Australia and New Zealand, like our government, you know, is not going to have that kind of power over Microsoft. So somebody no. else that does... You know, we really do want to see them wave that stick around and, uh, you know, give Microsoft a little bit of kind of what they need to, uh, you know, get them back onto the right path. Now, Adam, I just want to pick up on some stuff we spoke about last week where I was saying, look, you know, all of these cloud services, you're going to be sharing cores and these, uh, these you know, CPU cores and these speculative execution bugs are going to turn into a real headache. Turns out I was way off base there because, well... Two out of three of the major cloud providers have actually really thought about this. Um, we had a listener uh, hit us up on Mastodon, uh, Richard, who pointed out that, uh, you know, certainly in the case of AWS and GCP, they have blog posts up explaining how they like purge caches and things like that when they're moving someone to a new core. And like they, they don't allow, you know, core sharing with where the cache can get all mixed up and whatever. So it does look like we are actually in better shape than I realized realized with with regard to major cloud platforms and uh and these types of speculative execution bugs yeah i was also pleasantly surprised and especially at the level of detail that amazon's documentation goes into uh, on their you know kind of hardware assisted virtualization that they've built over the years for ec2 like there is a lot of detail about how they manage that and how they deal with minimizing the risks of these kinds of side channel and so on attacks um and that yeah that was nice and reassuring and then same you know google also has plenty of expertise in uh, running large-scale compute and they also have done a bunch more work than i anticipated which, yeah, only leaves Azure with some vague weasel wording uh, in their documentation about how there are no side channels in Azure because reasons. Last week we also spoke, you know, I, I mentioned that, you know, I wondered if services like Azure could wind up with what I was calling kind of the PowerShell problem, which is that they fundamentally... Um, you know, made some mistakes and it won't really be possible for them to fix stuff. I couldn't think of a good example at the time, but it, basically as soon as we finished recording, I did think of a great example, which is the AWS instance metadata service, right? And this is the one that got um, Capital One owned. And I don't think they could actually fix it in the end, but they had to create a V2 and encourage people to move towards it. So that was an example from 2019. And I just, yeah, I, I just think this is an interesting part of the conversation at the moment, which is you do wonder, because last week we spoke about uh, Azure fixing something and initially they just fixed it for new apps, but wouldn't retrospectively apply the fix because they worried about breaking stuff. You know, I do wonder if we're going to get to a point where Microsoft is going to need to V2 something and leave the vulnerable V1 up. Uh, you know, and this applies to all the all the uh, providers, but I just couldn't think of that example uh, last week. But it is a good one, isn't it? Yeah, it's a great example. And I mean, the availability of the version 2 certainly has not made all of the previous, you know, version 1 met metadata service things go away. I mean, it's a still a workhorse technique when you break into a cloud application or you have a server-side request forgery bug uh, to use that to then go and move around. And, you know, it's not 100% 
of AWS backed systems like it used to be. Uh, but you know, these things do have quite a long tail. And you know, you can see why I mean, instant metadata service is a great example of a security choice that made total sense in isolation, but once you think of the idea that customer applications are going to have server-side request forgery bugs in them, it's completely broken. And they're both reasonable places to start, but the reality ended up being that, you know, people are going to get badly compromised because of that combination. Yeah, yeah. Now, look, I just, I promised, last thing we're going to follow up from last week is we made a joke last week that, uh, uh, in-house counsels at large companies will be bending over backwards to figure out how not to report stuff to the SEC under their new, uh, you know, breach reporting <laughs> guidelines. And we, you and I both heard from a CISO we know who works for a mega corporation who said we got that back backwards, right? Yes, he totally said, asked backwards. Yes. Yeah, everyone's <laughs> going to be so scared of like an SEC investigation, the tendency is going to be to over-report, which I did find uh, actually quite interesting. Like no one wants the SEC drama. And I think, yeah, like, it's going to be interesting to see if the SEC just gets flooded um, with with incident reports because of this. I mean, all of this will level out eventually and find some sort of equilibrium. But we do have a piece here also from Cybersecurity Dive talking about basically the US Chamber of Commerce shitting bricks over, over these rule changes and being very mad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you can, you know, I guess my take on it last time we talked was, uh, you know, ultimately pretty naive because... You know, the idea that they're just going to report 100,000 Form 8Ks or whatever it was a day um, because that's the reality of what you need to do to comply with that regulation isn't a thing that I had previously appreciated. And the Chamber of Commerce obviously has its own agenda uh, and things yeah. that it's worried about, but there are some pretty real problems. And the, the Chamber of Commerce is asking for a year delay in actually implementing the rules so that we have some time to think about what it's actually going to mean and how 100,000 Form 8Ks a day you know, submitted to an API is actually going to work for the SEC and what if they get what they're asking for? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the whole thing is we've got to find a good faith line. Yes. Right? We've got to find where is where does good faith end? Where does it begin? You Capitalism know? And, and, is so good at that. Yeah, we've got to build the rules around that. And I think the only way to do that is to just see what happens once this new regime kicks in. But it, yeah, it could get messy. Let's yes, see. it certainly could. Anyway, it was funny. Uh, now we've got some more information on the Viasat hack, Adam. Um, you know, it's being reported as like all this great new detail. But I mean, this thing unfolded much the way you would expect it did. Yeah, yes, like there wasn't a huge amount of new de detail compared to what the reporting said. I mean, that the Russians broke into Viasat, modified the firmware and shipped it out to a bunch of terminals that matched things in Ukraine that they cared about. Uh, and then the new bit seemed to be that there was a subsequent campaign that looked like it uh, carried out denial of service on something involved with authorizing terminals back onto the network uh, so that they were not able to re-register or something. So some kind of auth system, it sounded like, was mm. being attacked, which uh, you know is an interesting detail. But to me, I guess what I wanted to see was more info about the pre-positioning work the Russians had done inside Viasat to get all the necessary information, to understand the models of modems, to understand where the customers were, like to do all of that work in advance, so there wasn't more detail about that. Uh, there was something about uh, subsequent attacks in the radio layer. There was, you know, vague conversation about RF-based attacks on on modems. So whether that's just like the mill doing electronic warfare in Ukraine, or whether it was something more cybery, we don't really know. Uh, mm. But still, I mean, this you know was a really interesting part of the very early days of that conflict, and it's funny how far in the past it seems now. Yeah. Yeah, because it's all gone Starlink now, right? Yes. So you really wonder when that day is coming for Starlink. You, you do, right? I mean, because the fact that it's been playing such a big part now, it must be sticking in the Russia's craw or something chronic, you know? Yeah. I mean, that was my best call of 2022, which is when Musk announced that a whole bunch of terminals were going into Ukraine. I said, I don't think he knows what he's doing. Y yeah. And it you guys were all like, no, of course he does. You know, and then it's like, no, as it turned out, <laughs> he really did not know what he was getting himself into. And funnily enough, though, I had this conversation with a friend recently. Like, I think he has actually managed to find the line. Okay. So they're in this situation where, okay, you want to use Starlink to attack targets in Crimea. No, that exposes us to too much risk. Um, if you stage a breakthrough, 
through Russian lines and you need to enable it in this territory where it was previously disabled. We're going to set you up with a contact where you can very quickly re-enable that um you know, uh, that coverage there. So I think they've found the balance between helping the Ukrainians and not making themselves a priority target for Russia. And I do think that's reasonable, right? So some people are like, oh, they're not letting them use it to attack Crimea. Well, you know, you need to do the risk calculations on that. They're not primarily a defense contractor. They're a consumer service. And that would open them up to just, you know, astronomical risk uh, uh, from from. Russian SIGINT and all sorts, right? So I, I think in the end, you have to give them credit for actually finding what looks to be a fairly reasonable line through this whole thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're right. That is, um, it's a very fine line to walk. And especially when Russia is not necessarily known for being proportional and playing by the kind of norms. So it's, a you know, you have to kind of be more conservative just because Russia has yeah, I mean, been a I, bit I still unpredictable think they're, they're, lately they're still wearing a lot of risk, right? Yes, because yes. ultimately, you know, Starlink is what is making Ukrainian uh, artillery accurate because they're backhauling the video over Starlink from drones back to the firing crews. Like this is, you know, this is an integral part of Ukraine's war machine, but they've had to just put some limits on it. And, uh, you know, yeah, but he didn't know what he was doing. No. <laughs> he didn't think it through, right? No. And like, here how, we are. How unlike him. <laughs> yeah, how unlike uh, Captain Impulse Control. Yes. <laughs> um, staying with Russia and Microsoft has announced that it's freezing license, license extensions for stuff like 0365 into uh, Russian organizations. I'm kind of surprised that they hadn't cut them off already. Uh, we've seen a report too that Atlassian is ceasing, uh, you know, licensing for Russian orgs. So, you know, things playing out much as you'd expect. Uh, although, as I say, I'm kind of surprised. Like Microsoft suspended, you know, uh, software license sales into Russia like quite a while ago. So I was kind of surprised that some of these licenses were still active. Yeah. And when you consider like the amount of Microsoft usage in Russia, I mean, something like 90% of, of, you know, kind of private sector companies use Microsoft stuff. Which, you know, that's not a surprise. But the fact that that hasn't been a bigger part of that conversation yet, mm. um, you know, I, I'm surprised by it anyway. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, no more 0365 or Jira. Although, you know, that was our joke internally, right? Which is that, <laughs> you know, bad. maybe it's the silver lining for Russians is yeah. they, they're they having their Jira taken away. Anymore. Yeah. No more confluence, you know. There'll be Sorry, Atlassian. Uh. <laughs> uh, now moving to law and order. And the Lolek Bulletproof Hosting Service, uh, the operator has been arrested and there's a bunch of indictments around this. Um, so there were five arrests in Poland. I think the main admin is still on the run uh, by the looks of things. But um, yeah, this seems like a win for the, for the you know, team, team cops, basically. Yeah, and this particular Bulletproof hoster was pretty heavily involved in the Networker ransomware, provided a bunch of uh, infrastructure for them. Also, you know, a bunch of other you know, crime stuff in DDoS. Um, and also, I think the Kiwi Farms Forum was hosted there. So taking out this particular hoster seems like a very much a net good to me. And Adam, you remember John DiMaggio, who, you know, went undercover with ransomware crews like Lockbit and whatever and wrote big blog posts about it. Well, he's done it again. And his news from inside, uh, he, he's a researcher at uh, Analyst One, and his news from inside Lockbit looks a little bit less rosy than last time. Yeah, it's uh, it's particularly funny. Uh, there's stories about uh, Lockbit, you know, publishing fake stuff, uh, fake you know companies that they've ransomed on their blog, lack of support for their ransomware software. A bunch of affiliates got arrested, so things are not looking particularly rosy there. But the one that's most funny uh, is that their dark web leak site appears to have run out of disk. And I guess they can't host it in the cloud and just add more disks super easily. Uh, so they're now ransoming organizations, you know, leaking their data. But you can't actually download the data because they ran out of disk. I so. mean, this is the scale problem that every startup will run <laughs> yes. into as they mature. You know, a bit of an infrastructure issue there. But yeah, the, the out of disk one got me as well. But, yeah, that's um, particularly funny. Yeah, so uh, the wheels are wobbling. They haven't fallen off, but uh, things at Lockbit are not looking uh, so great at the moment. Lorenzo Franceschi Beccarai over at uh, TechCrunch has this great interview up as well, just while we're on the topic of crime. He's interviewed an FBI investigator about, um, about the whole sort of DDoS for hire ecosystem. And what I like about this interview is it's just a really good briefing if you want to understand 
you know, that DDoS for hire ecosystem. It, you know, what what is the likely perpetrator going to look like? Well, they're a gamer. They're probably based in Western Europe or the United States. And, you know, this is what they do and blah, 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 blah. But it's a really, yeah, it's just a really interesting read. Like it was an unexpectedly interesting read, I found. What did you yeah, think? Yeah, me too. I agree completely. The um, the two guys, there was a Elliot Peterson from the FBI and one of his colleagues, Cameron Schroeder, uh, presented a black hat about their experiences being the FBI's uh, you know, DDoS enforcement arm, uh, and they're both from uh, the FBI's Anchorage uh, office, uh, and they've been doing it for a long time. And even the uh, one of the funny tidbits I found in it was that uh, this guy uh, Elliot uh, is the dude that makes the like seed screens that they stick on on stuff <laughs> that they've taken over. And every time we laugh at one of those, you know, kind of blue screens with all the logos on them, like they don't have a graphic. De- graphic uh, design support office or anything in the Anchorage field office of the FBI. They just have to make them themselves. Is he the uh, one who did the pom-pom Purin in I, I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> you kind of get that vibe. Um, so that's a, you know, a fun detail. But yeah, the, the interview just has a bunch of interesting stuff of what it's like being the cop that actually has to deal with this stuff. And mm. you know, presumably being woken up at Christmas because someone's DDoSing a game service or whatever else. So yeah, well worth a read. Yeah, and it's funny that they point out that there's like entire industries cre- created to mitigate this stuff, like Akamai, Cloudflare, whatever, you know, and it's it's a big expense. Um, but yeah, just a, just a fun read. Another fun read this week is uh, Brian Krebs has <laughs> done a great write-up on Worm uh, GPT. This is the chat GPT-like LLM that uh, that uh, BAC crews and, and fraudsters are using, which, you know, is actually pretty effective. Like it's a pretty useful tool by the looks of things, particularly for people who don't have a great grasp on... Uh, the English language. What I did find very funny is that like this guy's just been doxxed here. Like we know his name is Rafael Moraes and he's from Porto in uh, Portugal. And, you know, Brian contacts him on Telegram and asks him questions. And he's like, sure, I'll talk to you. I'm an open book. So I'm expecting us to be talking about his arrest next week. <laughs> yeah, he seems to be like a computer security student. Maybe he's recently graduated. Uh, and uh, it does seem a little, un- like he seems a little unclear about whether he's for or against crime. Uh, given that the service is marketed uh, for people to use for criminal endeavors, but he's talking now about adding some guide rails back into it to try and uh, you know make it less dangerous. But, but at then the same what's time, it for? Like it's still just... advertising on crime forums, etc. So yeah. yeah, like I mean, you kind of admire his entrepreneurial spirit in a way, but uh, you might have picked the wrong industry uh, to get started your career in, buddy. Yeah, but that one's a good read. I'd yes. recommend people go check that out. Um, got a good write-up here from John Grieg. It's something that we did cover in uh, Risky Business News as well. But the so-called Bitforge uh, vulnerabilities in uh, cryptographic multi-party computation protocols. Now, these things are very important to cryptocurrency platforms. And what we're seeing at the moment, I think, is this new wave of research into the you know crypto ecosystem where people are just tearing it apart. And and usually, like thankfully it was researchers who found these bugs, but you know, people are tearing these things apart, uh, finding these bugs and using them to make bank. And I just think this is this sort of stuff is really gonna accelerate the death of large parts of the of the crypto ecosystem, cryptocurrency ecosystem. Yeah, I think you you may well be right. I mean, implementing crypto systems is hard for everybody. You know, and we've seen that in implementations of auth protocols and, and encryption protocols for on the wire stuff. Like it's no different in the cryptocurrency world. They're not magically better at crypto anything and math and implementing secure systems on top of robust protocols than anyone else is. Uh, so it is kind of nice to see someone do this not necessarily immediately for crime, um, but uh, the guts of the issue here is some issues with multi-party signatures, multi-party um, crypto, which is used for wallet control uh, in a number of, of you know big cryptocurrency trading platforms. And so vulns in those are, you know, they are in, these are implementation bugs. They're not necessarily design flaws, but they are still a very big deal because of the amount of money sloshing around in the ecosystem and the difficulty of changing out kind of such primitive parts of it. Mm-hmm. So great research. And, uh, you know, it's just amazing it hasn't been used for crime immediately. Yes, exactly. Now, Suzanne Smelly has a really interesting report up here at the record. Uh, so there's a House panel uh, on China, and it's asked the Federal Communications Commission to, uh, and I'll just read from Suzanne's piece here, to help combat the threat posed by Chinese manufactured cellular connectivity modules embedded in IoT devices. Now, what's really interesting about this is, you know, we've had that big conversation about the risks posed to networks by things like like 
by building them on Huawei kit, right? So you don't want to uh, you don't want to use Huawei if you are a uh, Western country like a, you know Australia or New Zealand or the United States. Okay, fair enough. What's interesting is I've noticed that the conversation is now switching to these edge devices, which at scale. Uh, present risks of their own. So we spoke recently about, you know, solar panel controllers mostly being made in China and how this could be a bit of a problem. And now we're talking about, yeah, these little cellular modules. So these panel members noticed that, uh, you know, Russia stole a bunch of John Deere tractors from Ukraine and John Deere was able to remotely brick these things through their cellular modules. And, you know, to the US politicians on this panel, they looked at that and said, well, aren't we using a bunch of Chinese modules <laughs> that are the same and couldn't China do the same thing to us? And I think this is, you know, probably the right place to be looking at and and, and thinking about, right? Like is, is you know, forget about the network for a minute and start thinking about the endpoints and, uh, and what could go wrong there. Yeah, and I think people do underestimate the level of complexity in things like cellular modems. I mean, those are fully-fledged computers hidden inside, you know, what you imagine as a modem. And most of us think of a modem in the classic kind of 80s, 90s sense, where it's just a, you know, a thing that makes some tones or whatever, whereas cell modems are proper complicated. And mm. making those, you know, does require a bunch of complexity. So both from a backdoor perspective but also a bugs perspective an ongoing support perspective they're a much more important part of the network edge than people give them credit for and i think like that john deere story is interesting because you know we've seen so much kerfuffle with farmers wanting to jailbreak their john deere equipment legitimately so that they can make it do other stuff and then at the same time seeing like there is some value to having uh, control of these devices in the field um, yeah but that does go both ways and the amount of embedded um, microcontrollers with all sorts of interesting software and network connections beyond cell modems you know and all sorts of other gear and air conditioners and ups's and solar panel controllers etc like this is an area that now that we are in the world where you know, state competition can happen on IoT, on edge devices and computers. Like, we do have to care now. Stealing farm equipment, too, as a spoil of war. I mean, you can imagine the conversation, though. You're the Russian soldier who's stolen someone's tractor or harvester or whatever. You got it across the border, you sold it to someone, and then it gets bricked. <laughs> That's going to be an interesting conversation. That is going to be an interesting conversation. Now, I want to talk about a presentation that happened at Black Hat by, uh, was it Black Hat or DEF CON? was Vegas anyway. Uh, Blackout, I think. Blackout, yeah. So Panasonic, uh, a team from Panasonic uh, did a big talk about how they're thinking about uh, security risks in their IoT devices and about a honeypot program they spun up to sort of capture, uh, you know, good intelligence on how people are attacking their products. I just found this really great, actually, that you've got a manufacturer like Panasonic you know, thinking about this sort of stuff and doing this sort of research. So I just wanted to talk about it as a way of saying, hey, Panasonic... Well done. Yeah, now this is, it was really reassuring to see, you know, that there are people inside a big vendor, electronics manufacturer like that, doing this kind of work, and that they are thinking in novel ways about it. So, you know, for example, one of the things they talked about is that expecting consumers and owners of devices to be able to deploy firmware updates uh, is maybe not realistic, right? And having an ecosystem that respects the reality of the situation that you need to be able to respond beyond just, well, here's a firmware update on a website. That's the end of our obligation. Um, one of the things they talked about was having systems that can detect and respond more generically uh, so that even if you don't apply the patch, you've got some chance to receive I don't know, like telemetry that blocks relevant attacks in the field without necessarily fixing the bugs and, and that kind of thing. So it's really nice seeing yeah. a big vendor being doing what it should be and doing, doing and do, right. absolutely doing what it should uh. and also i think it's a you know we're also focused on cost when we buy appliances or buy devices and you know the cheapest thing is sometimes cheap for a reason and the more yeah. expensive ones do support longer life cycle support programs more in-depth thinking about security and there's a reason to not always go you know bargain basement on everything they're just chasing that, you know, new labeling law. They want to get their five stars on their box. <laughs> well, if it gets the job done and makes them do it well, then I'm all for it. Now, some crappy news. Uh, there's been a bunch of layoffs in the uh, security field. 
Rapid7 cut like hundreds of jobs, uh, 18% of its workforce. I didn't realize they had quite that many staff actually until I, I looked into this the other day. Uh, but yeah, they fired a whole bunch of people, which really sucks. Uh, SecureWorks has laid off 15% of its staff. We've seen layoffs uh, at NCC Group as well. So, you know, a lot of people getting laid off all at once uh, at the moment. And some of these companies, they're not even doing badly like i think rapid seven is doing just fine but i don't know if they're trying to juice the share price or whatever but yeah certainly sucks for the people who've been laid off i don't i don't, I don't approve of this adam yeah we, I and mean, we i guess we thought that some of the tech industry wider tech industry layoffs you know that the security was a little bit in, uh, insulated from it which does not necessarily look like it's the case and yeah i mean these are real people with real lives and, and bills to pay and it is always hard seeing people um lose their jobs and as you said, especially when, you know, the financial numbers maybe don't look so bad, but, yeah. you know, that's that's just capitalism for you. What are we supposed to do, right? Yeah, I mean, I will say, though, that, like, in the general tech ecosystem, like, the number of people hired into tech throughout the COVID-19 pandemic was absolutely huge. Yes. So even if you look at the layoffs compared to the hires, like, we are still got a lot more people employed in tech than we did, uh, you know, a few years ago. And the job market still seems pretty healthy, particularly in security. So I do think security is different. I think that if you have been laid off from a cybersecurity job, your odds of getting another one are pretty good. Yeah, yeah um, I think so, yes. You know, yes. so so as an as a, as a industry, like I hear anecdotal evidence that uh, security budgets are getting cut and that will flow through to the uh, vendor ecosystem. But if you look at like the market research data out of firms like IDC and whatever, like budgets are still forecast to grow. So I think it is a slightly uncertain period in the industry at the moment, but by and large, you know, if you're going to be in tech, cybersecurity seems to be a good place to be. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I would be more worried about being in a vendor than necessarily like an end, you know, a company cybersecurity role because, you know, how much stuff can Fortinet possibly sell after the last couple of years? Uh, so, you know, I would be more, more worried about that if that was me. But yeah, it's it's just, you know, it always is hard seeing people having their lives shaken up by the businesses around them. Yeah. I mean, did you know, though, Fortinet's worth more than CrowdStrike? I know. <laughs> And here, you know, they're like a forty billion dollar company or something. Yeah, like it's I insane. So I think sense. they're probably going to continue to sell stuff, right? Probably, because they yes. at this point they've got you know <laughs> a very well oiled marketing and sales <laughs> machine. So yes. you know I'm just preparing to disappoint you on that one. Yeah, I know, I know. <sighs> and before we leave, uh, before we wrap it up this week, Adam, Kevin Collier posted a uh, posted <laughs> to Mastodon. I just thought this was really funny. I wanted to I wanted to repeat <laughs> it because of course you know it was it was Vegas week last week. Now. You know, unless you've been living in a hole, you would know about the giant orb. Yes, the Las Vegas has been blessed with a giant, a giant orb display screen in the shape of a sphere. <laughs> yeah, and this thing is humongous, right? And it's very cool and obviously is just waiting for someone to shell it. And it didn't happen. And so Kevin, Kevin, who's a you know cybersecurity reporter with NBC, has posted DEFCON is over and nobody hacked the giant Las Vegas sphere. Four days of the biggest hacker conference set next to a giant LED globe and it didn't do anything against its program except maybe turn off briefly. Someone's getting old. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, it's just, it's so asking for it. And he made good points there, yeah, though, you know. But I think also, Adam, this is a sign of the times. It right? is. This is a sign of the times because it's entirely possible that it's well secured. It's entirely possible that surely it's air not. No, surely not. No, I think hackers are just getting on. We saw Dave Atel whinging about uh, his experience. The crowds at, 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 <laughs> at yeah, I know it did seem F-Con. a little, little get off my lawn. Uh, <laughs> Which, that, that post you know, really I feel like, you know, he and I are of not dissimilar vintage and I also feel like they should get off our lawn. But um, yeah, like maybe it's just, maybe it's a sign of the times that- uh, yeah. I think so, because I I can't tell, I can't tell whether it's because this field has matured or because, uh, you know, and and nobody wants to target it, or this field has matured and it's actually possible to build a giant LED orb in the middle of Las Vegas during DEF CON and have it not get owned. Like, something's changed, for sure. (laughs) I think it's just the hacker kids getting old. That's what it is. We we can't secure anything, surely not. (laughs) Okay, Adam, that is it for most of the news, but we're going to chat with this week's feature guest now. Heather Adkins is the VP of Security Engineering at Google and also serves as the Vice Chair of the Department of Homeland Security's Cyber Safety Review Board. Heather, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Now, 
the reason we asked you to come along today is because the CSRB has been in the news a fair bit uh, over the last week or so. So let's talk about the Lapsus report. The CSRB's report uh, into the activities of Lapsus has, uh, was released last week. And, uh, you know, CSRB spent a bunch of time looking at what those crazy Lapsus kids got up to. And I guess one thing we should sort of clear up straight off the bat is that Lapsus wasn't really an established group that even lasted very long or had a defined membership. You know, what we call Lapsus is more, I, you know, it's more like a frame of mind, man. You know, like it's a, it's a group of TTPs and a, and a, and a, and a grouping of behaviours. Like, would you, you know, like it's online juvenile delinquency, basically. Like, would, would you agree with that? I think so. I mean, they certainly styled themselves lapses. They had a public telegram channel, but it was pretty clear that they were all sort of involved in other things. And there's this broader threat landscape that they all operated in. And in some cases, we believe probably are still uh, active and operating. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, lapses is a mindset. I think that's a good way of putting it. So look, you know, I've read the report. I think every CISO listening to this should read this report because really what it spells out is you know, these kids were just doing whatever it would take to get things done. And there was a bunch of stuff in the report I didn't know, like they were compromising people's, uh, you know, like iCloud or, you know, photos albums in the cloud to pull out embarrassing stuff that they could use to blackmail people to perform certain actions for them. I mean, this is social engineering on steroids at this point, isn't it? I think so. And they certainly were very creative at social engineering. Um, we tend to, in uh, kind of a threat intelligence landscape, put labels on things, put threat actors in boxes, try to figure out what their favorite techniques are. I think what you had here were a lot of very creative kids who have digital skills and are just uh, learning in real time. Like you can see them kind of learning new techniques. Um, and so there were really no rules um, yeah. And uh, but, you know, the large majority of the very successful attacks against well-defended organizations did stem from some fairly basic engine, uh, social engineering um, where they were just, you know, using accents, different languages, just calling people up. Uh, you know, if the first thing didn't try or succeed, you know, try, try again until something succeeds. And they, they weren't really worried so much about failing, uh, they were only worried about succeeding, which is uh, in their benefit. They, they sort of strike me as like the next generation of the type of hacker that Kevin Mitnick was back in the day, right? Like really just in an attitude sense, right? Which is just to go all out. I think so. I think, though, if if you kind of listen to Kevin's uh, interviews over the years, he was super interested in just learning how things work. Um, you didn't get a maliciousness uh, on the other end of that. Um, I think what we did see here is, you know, they would delete uh, infrastructure, like the Lapsus guys would delete infrastructure in some cases, um, taunt employees on kind of internal chat, like internal Slack. Um, so there, that was a little bit different. Like you never really saw... Yeah. Kevin sort of bring out a malicious tone to what he did. Yeah, they're definitely nasty. Uh, that That's for sure. So uh, the big takeaway, I, I think there's a few takeaways from the report. One is that where these attackers tend to tended to strike was where business process outsourcing organizations, enterprises, and telcos, in the case of like SMS two-factor authentication, they seem to, to exploit the seams between where those things draw, join up, which I, which is something that I found quite interesting. I found it interesting too. And, you know, I think about, you know, what was I doing when I was 16 or 17? And I certainly didn't study the uh, interrelationships between multinational organizations and their workforce supply chain. Um, so it was interesting to see how they had pieced together, um, you know, if you went after a particular business process outsourcer, you could then sort of uh, chain exploit all of their customers. And in the case of telcos, they were going after the telcos in some cases via the BPO, but going after the telco in order to do the SIM swap in order to attack the a target downstream. So it was kind of multi-chained, which is super interesting and in just sort of understanding uh, kind of how all these pieces are fit together, fitting together. Yeah, I mean, the report makes it clear that they actually had a rather good understanding about how all of these business processes worked, which is, you know, I mean, that's, it's smart. Yeah, they're smart. 
it struck me reading it, you know, we've used the term like full, we've seen the term full spectrum cyber used, you know, in marketing materials uh, for, for security companies over the years. And like, to me, like this with the lineage back through uh, like the Lulset crew, like this is what full spectrum kind of feels like to me, the willingness to do anything and to cross boundaries that, you know, as a security professional, we've kind of been taught to ignore. Like when I'm a pen tester by trade and you think, you know, we have enough trouble coming up with a scope that reflects the reality of threats in business environments anyway. And then these kids are just so far beyond what we as a security industry are kind of prepared for. Like, do, do you think that the way we manage InfoSec risk is kind of ready for punk kids? <laughs> well, well, it's really interesting because I think about a lot of the nation state actors that we study and believe it or not, many of them are professionalized. You know, they're not going to call up your local police department and have your house swatted. They may arrest you if you ever try to walk, in, you know, across the border to visit them. But um, I, I do think for that reason, we, a lot of people doing InfoSec at the moment probably kind of think about the the bad guys at a distance you know they're they you know they're going to operate within these constraints that we assume and we we build these sort of investigator biases around how they behave so this was i think a huge wake-up call right you had a, a set of threat actors who weren't afraid to have a public telegram channel talk about their victims on twitter and you know just openly taunt <laughs> That they're targeted organizations, and and in some cases that was the purpose is just mm. to taunt them. Uh, yeah, so I think it full, definitely full spectrum assholes. I think is what we're yeah, like chaotic evil. Your words, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> now, look, look. I, you know, the key takeaway, the big one uh, out of the report is that enterprises should absolutely not rely in any way, shape, or form on SMS-based multi-factor authentication. It makes the point that uh, you know code-based stuff and push-based stuff is of limited utility as well. It's better. So you've you've sort of laid out the spectrum of effectiveness for uh, multi-factor authentication. At the worst end is SMS and then you've got code generators push. And then, you know, at the good end, you've got FIDO2. I, I also will point out that uh, a lot of the organizations that had m more mature security uh, programs actually caught these things in the process, evicted the attackers, adapted. Like, so there is some good news in the report as well. Uh, but that big takeaway is that SMS MFA has no place in the enterprise. Would you agree? Yeah, and I think really the target here is a passwordless world where... Hey, look, you know, we've gotten people into MFA by using SMS because it's readily available. Uh, Mudge gave a talk about this just a couple of weeks ago, talking about how many account hijackings we have prevented by rolling out MFA over SMS. And that's a good thing. But this is a milestone. This is not the end goal. And what we found is we are now at the point in the ecosystem where we need to start moving beyond the milestone of SMS to the next milestone, which is FIDO. Um, and even security keys or, you know, FIDO-backed keys and protocols um, are probably also not a passwordless world. We have much more work to do, probably another decade of work to do. But what we wanted to do is really inspire the uh, innovation part of the community to continue to study usability and continue to study the feasibility of what tech will look like when we no longer use string-based passwords and you know some form or factor so yeah time to get away from sms but also please keep innovating uh towards a passwordless world previously when people have taken aim at sms mfa right in the case of like you know facebook using it to secure accounts and whatever People like Alex Damos will come out and say, look, you know, when you're trying to secure hundreds of millions, billions of accounts, you know, mm -hmm. it's better than nothing. It stops cred stuffing. You know, it actually still has utility. I am sympathetic to that argument. I'm just wondering if we should be less sympathetic to that argument now that we know what we know about how criminals have adapted to, to SMS MFA. Do we still think, I mean, you, you can't really argue that it's not better than nothing, right? Look, I think if you haven't implemented anything, you might just jump this milestone to the next one. You might not bother with SMS. You might just go straight to security keys. However, if you're walking this slow road towards a passwordless world and SMS is as good as it gets for you today, I, I think you're right. I think it's a, a, a good choice. I would agree with Alex there. Um, but you can't stop. Right, I think you have to keep going yeah. down the road. Well, I think I think the issue more in the B to C stuff is that consumers might not be able to 
use some of these newer solutions. They might not have a hardware key. They might not have a device that supports pass keys, for example, right? So I, I just get the sense that SMS is probably going to be around for a while longer. And for low value accounts, it's still going to be better than nothing. I think that's right. And I think the, uh, the consumer hardware will improve. Um, that will happen in some parts of the world faster than others. But the idea is that in 10 years, this is just the de facto standard and we have a much better solution across the whole ecosystem. Now, the board has made some recommendations in terms of what various US government agencies can do in terms of uh, tightening up the the SMS, uh, you know, sorry, the uh, SIM swapping stuff. You know, do you think it's likely that, uh, you know, like the FCC or the FTC or whatever are going to actually act on the board's recommendations? And what is it that they can even do? Well, interestingly, as we were writing the report, uh, the FTC came out with some um, some guidance, and uh, you can read that. There's a, a nice little footnote in there referencing it. I think they are going to try to look at improving the kind of identity verification experience, for example, might be something they look at. I don't want to speak on behalf of them. Um, but I think there is recognition that more needs to be done here. And uh, we make lots of really detailed recommendations of examples of things you can do to uh, kind of better identify people who need a SIM swap. There are legitimate reasons to do this. But when you cannot identify yourself reliably, we do need to put some friction in there to make sure that you're not a bad guy trying to do it. Um, So I, I do have hope. I think there's general ecosystem recognition. Um, we'll see what the path to getting there is. Yeah. Now, uh, I look, as I said earlier, everyone should go read this report. I think it's a really excellent write-up of you know, like what these people can do to you. Uh, and there's a bunch of interesting stuff in there beyond social engineering. Like they, they, they did not do trash hacking. Like they were using bring your own vulnerable drivers to disable EDR and whatever, which is, you know, just proof that unless you're you're configuring and monitoring your EDR correctly, it is useless. Uh, and, and, and this is why. Uh, but we will wrap it up there. But Adam, I believe before we go, you had one last question. Yeah. Do you feel like in the process of the investigation, you got the sense that the telcos finally understand their role in the identity ecosystem? Or is, is that a thing that's still just, they don't really get their responsibility? Yeah, we were really lucky. We had um, uh, kind of great conversations with uh, actually people from all over. I think for um, telcos, you know, if you've ever had to go through that experience of uh, moving your phone service, either between providers or between phones, if you are experiencing friction in that process, the user journey of that needs to be smooth. And I think that they're balancing some business risks. And, uh, you know, I think we, we should recognize that. But I, I do think there are solutions to this, and I'm, uh, I'm hopeful. Okay. Well, that seems a nice and fluffy place to leave it. Heather Adkins, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Thank you for having me. And Adam, thanks a lot, uh, as always, for doing the week's news, and we'll do it all again next week. Yeah, most welcome, Pat. I'll talk to you then. That was Adam Boileau there with a check of the week's security news alongside Google's Heather Adkins. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with HD Moore, the co-founder of RunZero. RunZero is an asset discovery tool that works really, really, really well. Uh, It has a network scanning component, but you can also feed it data from various APIs and integrations. But long story short, it gives you incredible visibility into the devices and software in your environment, and uh, it's extremely easy to set up. And now RunZero has been around for a while, the clearest use cases are emerging. And a big one, according to HD, is rapid response to these big threats in your org, like file transfer appliances that turn out to have horrible CVEs, you know, crappy border devices like Fortinets. Being able to rapidly find those things and deal with them uh, is something that people are definitely using RunZero for. Here's HD. So most customers uh, who use RunZero use this as the very first step to respond to a new risk, a new incident, a new exposure. When you're looking at something like the movement vulnerabilities, the the sister's vulnerabilities, even like the older like exchange proxy shell bugs, um, those are all issues that you can't really scan for. Your typical scan and patch process or software inventory isn't really going to work very well because those particular installations may be on a system that's not part of your endpoint management. They may not be covered by your volume management, maybe in a separate environment, a separate ADU, a subsidiary. And what it really you know takes to be able to find that stuff quickly is having an inventory of all of your um, external and internal facing applications and assets. Uh, that you can search pretty much instantaneously to get ahead of these issues. Um, it was amazing to see how quickly it went from move it being mentioned on your show to 
turning into effectively this massive, um, you know, nationwide breach event, effectively, as we watch um, multiple businesses, government agencies, all um, slowly uh, reporting all the data loss that they've heard because of their movement exposures. So we really try to help customers identify where their technology uh, exists, where their products exist, and be able to respond, you know, instantaneously to events like this. Yeah, I mean, one thing I wonder too is there there are other ways to do quick and dirty discovery of certain things, particularly externally facing things. I think this is, what's amazing to me is it strikes me as a bit of a lost art, right? When you look at some of this stuff, like your Fortigates, your Move-Its and whatever, like anyone armed with Nmap and a little bit of knowledge should be able to find that stuff on the perimeter. Why do you think it is people aren't doing that? Do you think that is a bit of a lost art, the art of doing doing your own discovery with something like a port scanner and Telnet or Netcat? Uh, do you think that's a bit of a lost art? Oh, definitely. There's so few people who are doing any kind of new work in the scanning space these days. Um, if you look at uh, you know, the Nmap case, like you can go pretty far with Nmap. Like if the built-in scripts don't cover the type of uh, application you're looking for, you can quickly add one. You know, look for the title of the web page, look for the fav icon of the body, uh, some other indicator that that application is installed. But you got to know, you know, what criteria to go look for, and then go build the script and run the scan. Uh, for things like a lot of the, like the FortiGates and other applications where they're exposing a web interface, you um, have to, oftentimes there's a, a TLS handshake, there's yeah. a, maybe a redirect, you may have to get a cookie first, send the cookie back, and then end up on the right page before you can really detect uh, which version or which uh, landing page you're on. But um, you're right, like with a little bit of effort, folks really could be using off-the-shelf open source tools for this stuff, but those tools are often pretty good about telling you what a particular service is, but they don't really tell you what the device itself is. Like they can say, hey, we see this embed this web server, but they won't say, oh, it's a FortiGate appliance. Yeah. And that's kind of the big gap right now of at least open source and the vulnerability management tools. No, I mean, I think you're right. Like it is different these days when you're having to do some sort of TLS handshake instead of just doing a straight banner grab, which is how it was back in the in the sort of Nmap days, right? Yeah. In the case of IS web servers and applications, they're even more annoying in that the default virtual host, if you connect to it, if you don't send SNI or the um, you know server name indicator header and your TLS connection, you'll get the default website. You won't actually get the real application. And so for those IIS host applications, you have to know what name to talk to in the first place just to be able to get any response from the application. Otherwise, you get the default IIS website. Uh, yeah. So scanning these days has gotten tricky. So you are getting people these days coming to you just to solve that use case. And, and it's really funny, right? Because this is pretty much the simplest thing that Run Zero can do, right? Like you've built this absolutely sophisticated space shuttle and people are basically using your space shuttle to take it to the shops to buy, uh, you know, a bottle of milk is what you're telling me. <laughs> it's true. We, we have lots of other use cases too, but the thing that I think we're most excited about helping customers with is that, you know, 30 minute later response of now you know where all that stuff is that you're worried about. And then we do a million other things too, like tracking asset ownership, integrating their cloud stuff, telling you where your endpoint protection is, what type of security controls you have in place for a given asset. We can tell you, like, is this a device that you've been covering with your bone scanning? Is this a device that you have an endpoint agent on at all? Um, is it running some totally unauthorized crap you've never seen before? Like, so we really try to help folks get a lot more context around, you know, who was an asset, how long it has been there, how has it been changing over time? Um, you know, anything we can do to tell you, uh, you know, who, you know, basically who to phone, who to phone to basically take that device offline, otherwise mm -hmm. uh, mitigate it. Yeah, I mean, one thing I find really interesting about asset discovery these days is its applications in vulnerability management, but. It is, you know, as much as it's related, it's it's not the same thing. And I just do wonder how much guidance do you push out through the console in your product to people to tell them what they should be looking for, right? Because when you think about stuff like Move It, I mean, you know, people listening to my show, people who are up on the news, they're going to know that this is something they need to look for. But that's not going to be the case at, any, at, at every enterprise. Do you find that you need to give people a prompt or do an automatic query for them and, and spit out an alert saying, hey, this is something you really need to take care of? Or, or do you just leave it completely under the control of the customer? Uh, yeah, there's a really wide range of that. Um, you know, any large security team is typically going to be you know, listening to your show, uh, keeping up with the news, generally seeing you know, the, the noise and the interwebs, uh, talking about some new exploit going around. Uh, but then there's a long tail of everybody else. Yeah. And as you kind of move down to like SMB, mid-market, kind of the smaller companies that don't have dedicated security teams, like they're really expecting you to push that to them. So we create um, our kind of workflow for it is we start off doing a little bit of research for us. Like, how do we find this thing? What port is it on? Do we already detect it? Do we already basically have a fingerprint for it we can quickly give to customers? Um, and then there's really two phases. The first phase is if there's a way that you can search within the Run Zero inventory to find it already without having to create a specific fingerprint for it, get that out first. Um, create a query, push it out to all the customers, uh, put a blog post out there for it, say, here's how you can find all that stuff this second. 
Um, in cases where that particular method is, is slow or inefficient, uh, what we'll do is go create a separate fingerprint specifically for that product, push that out, and then as folks are um, running their daily hourly scans, uh, it'll be a much faster way to fingerprint whatever that particular thing is. So good examples there are like we can, uh, we can identify move it by default uh, on day one, uh, but we can tell you the exact version of move it on day two or day three. Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious, what sort of companies run move it, run Fortigates and whatever, and don't necessarily know that they're running them? You know, is that a category of organization that exists? Absolutely. Um, we worked with quite a few customers who were responding to both, you know, 48 firewalls being exposed and the move it exposures. And half the time we were telling them, hey, you've got to move it instance. And half the time they were asking for help on us saying, hey, how do we find the rest of them? So it's it definitely a wide range out there. But um, for move it in particular, it was really surprising to see uh, how popular it was within like small government. So uh, yeah. municipal, state, regional like we didn't see a ton of federal for it, but you definitely see a lot of the like smaller government agencies using the software. Now you mentioned that people were trying to hunt down their Fortinet gear. I'm curious about this because Adam and I have spoken at length about like how this is a real pickle because you can't really fix that stuff, you know? So what are they doing when they find it? That's a great question. Um, one of the customers we reached out to about the Fortigate SLL VPN, they effectively just blocked the port. They said, we're going to take the thing offline or we're going to put a filter in front of it on the far, on that either router or firewall saying you can't talk to SLV VPN port at all until they are able to get ahead of it. And for um, the so block, and, block with, until patch. But I mean, like we know that these things, there's going to be another bug like, you know, next week. Right. So is that what they're just doing is they're pulling it offline, suspending access to the VPN, patching, opening it up, waiting for the next one. Uh, what we saw in a lot of cases, especially with MoveIt, is that folks who create uh, IP ACLs for the one or two customers that had to use it yeah. during that time period, and they work on replacing it with something else going forward because they realize, like, hey, this thing with this bad is not going to get better quick. So, um, you know, I can't speak sp particularly for Fortinet, but there's a lot of equipment out there where, you know, the first time you find the first vulnerability, you realize that you'll see one a month going forward for the next year until they really get on top of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, look, another thing that you've been doing lately is a big push into ICS. Um, it's interesting because you've figured out a way to safely scan ICS environments actively by understanding the way these things, by the way their protocols work, right? And often it's UDP-based stuff. You've figured out how to scan them carefully in a way that doesn't push them over. Uh, that said, there will still be customers who do not want you to do active scanning of an ICS environment. And in that case, you can plug into some span ports and do it passively. So you have built a passive capability into the product. What I was going to ask is like, you know, how popular is this proving to be? Because I know, I, you know, I'm an advisor with RunZero. I know this is something you've worked on for a couple of years now, right? Is, is really trying to make this thing useful to ICS. You've done that now. What's the reception been like? Um, we've got a, a, it's pretty much two camps. It's very polarized. You've got folks who um, ha, you know, operate in an OT environment and they just scan it with runs around day one and everything's fine. Everyone goes about the business. Uh, you've got other folks who are um, terrified of running any scans at all and it's just hoop jumping all the way. And it could be that the team that we're working with is, you know, totally fine with uh, running a scan or at least scanning the management devices, if not the actual, you know, PLCs, controllers, uh, but scanning like, you know, the Windows, HMIs, things like that. Uh, and then it's the networking team within the OT department that says, no, you can't do that or we're just going to block it entirely. So we have a lot of customers where um, the well, they're fighting. They're fighting their own teams. A lot, yeah. There's yeah, a lot right. of that. Um, there's a huge turf wars between the OT networking teams, the OT um, admins, and the IT and security teams. Um, that's one of the reasons we built the the passive sampling solution. Is that if you don't want to trust our scanner, you can now just plug in the top board pipe packets into it, uh, and you can use any existing Explorer installation as a uh, passive capture broadcast monitoring point. Uh, so you don't have to have a span port, but if you do, great. You can also pipe traffic to it through ERSPAN, GRE, VXLAND, uh, Q and Q, uh, any kind of tagging and encapsulation that you typically see for passive detection tools. Uh, you can pipe directly into the Run Zero Explorer now and get a lot more information. Uh, what is really funny though is in the last six months we've seen a huge push by OT vendors to now add scanning capabilities. After these vendors have been telling folks, "No, you can't do it safely for years," they finally realize, "Oh, maybe you can." And as long as you speak the right protocols and don't trip over things and are careful about it, it's a great way to figure out what's in your environment. So what, they're, they're making their own? Yeah, it's been fun to see what they call it. Um, I mean, I'm sure they know what they're doing. There's some, um, these folks work in the space a lot. They probably know what protocol they're speaking. They're emulating the management tools for the OT protocols themselves. So they'll use the same Modbus queries that the HMI workstation will to monitor the same equipment. What effectively what Run Zero has been doing since day one. Like we yeah. just speak the same protocols that you expect to see on the network. But the OT vendors are starting to realize that this is actually something you can do. And the data is so much more better than passive. 
Like we still run side-by-side uh, -side, uh, scan versus passive across most of our environments to get a sense for how well it's working. And what we see is that passive, of course, only sees data that happens to occur. So if, you, if nothing's talking to your device, you get no data for it. If the only thing um, it's doing is beaconing out DNS, that's about all you can pull off the device. And it's such a limited resource that some of the OT inventory solutions require 24 hours before uh, they'll give you a list of, of any devices from when you start capturing data. Uh, well, we and really you're just not going to on... see, there's some stuff you just won't see because it's never going to beacon out, right? Like, whereas exactly. when, you, when you're doing active, especially with something like OT, OT, very simple devices often, you know, you need to go active to find them. Yeah. But, but I guess, I guess my, I, my question was really more about like, you know, you've built this product now, like what's the demand like? Because I find that the ICS market is a weird one because people will build a thing for, the, for ICS and OT, right? And then no one buys it because it's just such a fundamentally different part of the market. You know, what's the reception been like commercially? Um, we don't sell a lot to OT specific. We do sell a lot of, uh, to security teams that handle OT and IT uh, yeah, together. Right. Right. And so, um, you know, the OT folks are coming to us saying, you're the best OT solution in town, we're going to use you because they don't know what we are. Um, but if you have a security team that has a remnant of, we need to lock down ports, we need to disable Telnet, we need to turn off SMP, like just really basic stuff, and they can't use a bone scanner to it because it'll kill all their gear, then they look at us as a way to get that visibility and start improving the security. All right, HD Moore, thank you so much for joining us uh, to give us an update on all things Run Zero. Uh, always very interesting. Cheers. Thanks, Pat. Appreciate your time. That was HD Moore there with a chat about all things Run Zero, and you can find them at runzero.com. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the Seriously Risky Business podcast in the Risky Business News RSS feed. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.